Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Kurt Braunohler started performing comedy at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York City in 1998 and took an experimental filmmaking improv group to the Edinburgh Fringe long before meeting Kristen Shaw, with whom Kurt would start a variety show called Hot Tub, win awards and kudos at festivals from Aspen to Australia, and eventually begin his own solo career as a stand-up comedian and actor. He has hosted a game show on IFC, hired a skywriter to puff out the letters How Do I Land?, jet skied down the Mississippi River for Comedy Central, and appeared on shows such as The Good Place and Bob's Burgers, and movies such as The Big Sick and Barbarian. In 2022, he also released his second stand-up special, Perfectly Stupid, which premiered on the Moment platform before getting wider distribution. Kurt spoke with me about that decision, as well as the other big decisions in his life and career. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! <laughs> well, congratulations, Kurt Brownholer, on your second full solo special, Perfectly Stupid. Thank uh, you. What, okay, Last things first, I have one very insignificant question and then one more. I love it. Did you, did you know when you decided to open with a inflatable tube dancer that you were tapping into the zeitgeist? (laughs) No, I did not. And when Nope came out, I was actually pretty bummed. Um, uh, not because the, the, the movie's not good or anything, just, but there's, you know, inflatable tube dancing men in it. And, no, I have wa- I have wanted to do an inflatable tube dancers at a show since I started comedy. But in my mind, when I uh, what I wanted was them all to be behind me, and okay. so that when I would like hit a punchline, I could like hit hit a button and have them all like come up like they really love the joke. <laughs> but, but it doesn't work that way because they're very loud, and uh, it would ruin the show. But then another idea I had was you know those like uh, like uh they're like children's toys that are like it's a it'll be a giraffe or something but it's made up of all little tiny plastic pieces so they're held together with string okay. and then you press the button on the bottom and it relaxes the string so it collapses do you know what i'm talking about i think i do yeah <laughs> i wanted those that was my other idea for like hit a punchline and then a hit a button and then they all pop up behind me and like shake a little bit and then i hit another button and they just drop but um so no, no. I- now I, something now I, I've been I, I, wanting. I want to see both of those things now. I know, right? So you'll have to at least try it. Yeah, you, you could always cut it and post. Yeah, um, we were gonna like we were gonna use the 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 dancing fan guys as like marketing for the special, but then once Jordan Peele was using them for Nope, it was like ah, we kind of can't do that, which is okay because I think we got some cool key art anyway. Yeah. What? So what made you decide to go with the team at Moment? for the debut. I know it's going to roll out on other platforms eventually. Yeah. But um, up until a couple months ago, Moment wasn't even really a thing. So how did you decide to do it there? It just, it's a very artist-friendly uh, site. You know, it allows it to 
um, feel like an event. If it makes a premiere feel a little bit more like an event because there's like, there's a meet and greet, there's an after party. You can like, uh, bundle merchandise with it as well. Like I'm make, I made a, um, a book that I reference in the special. I made that that you can actually buy when you watch the show. Um, and it also feels like, you know, right now it, there's a, uh, there's a lot of places to watch comedy and there's a lot of comedy out there. And uh, I think the uh, concept behind the moment where there is a specific time that it premieres and we can all watch it together kind of reintroduces a sense of community to uh, a comedy special that usually is just, you know, people watch it whenever, whenever they can. But now it's like, oh, we're all doing it together. It just felt pretty cool. And I think a lot of the reason that moments working their way into the comedy community is that Bart Coleman, who used to book uh, at midnight and a bunch of other stuff is now works there. Okay. So, yeah. so Bart was the real selling point for you or? Uh, I mean, I just know Bart and, you know, they had approached us, they had approached me about doing stuff during the pandemic um, and it never, we just never kind of like made it, got it to work. But I was like, this is a cool way to, and also when you have like a tiered release, like I do, it kind of gives an opportunity for like three cycles of press, because again, it, it, it seems like to get people to actually commit to watching something, it has to be like the third time they're hearing reference of it or seeing it somewhere right. that they're like, okay, well, I guess this is good i'll watch it <laughs> now did bart or anyone else at moment give you a sense of like what to expect in terms of numbers of who would show up for the actual live premiere and chat and who might show up in the next 14 days uh or- they say that the they say 70 percent of ticket sales usually happen after the premiere uh, but the premiere kind of gives a reason to kick it off uh, mm-hmm. and like get people in on that day um, and that's, that seems to be bearing out, which is great. And I, and, you know, and just doing a lot of press for it and doing the tonight show next week. So hopefully we'll, hopefully people will watch this one, you know, cause my last special was with comedy central and they aired that once at midnight on a Tuesday and then, uh, and then at 4am and then they never aired it again. So, <laughs> and then it was behind a paywall on the fucking comedy central site. Now, do you, did you, are you able to get any ownership of that back or is it still there? No, they, Comedy they own, paywall? We, they own it, but I can, I can post clips from it and stuff like that. Even okay. though there's, you know, they, Viacom has some bot that challenges me on that like once a week. And then I have to submit like a thing to either YouTube or to Instagram saying, no, this is my material. I own the rights right. to it. And I then, and then Viacom, that is me. <laughs> yeah, that is me. I wrote those words. I performed those words and then Viacom backs off. But, and I don't know if it's someone physically doing it or if it's just they have like bots crawling Instagram searching for their digital copyright. <laughs> Speaking of bots, you have your own sort of bot in the special Jokatron. Yeah. Now, I had already seen in the last few months AI, artificial intelligence, making big waves in, in terms of artwork. Yeah. You, know, you suggest a prompt and then it creates an immediate painting or drawing for you. Is is this something that's, that's real or is this just a gimmick? Uh, what the Jokatron yeah. is Jokatron real? Yeah, Jokatron is real. It's uh, it was created by two data scientists, uh, Mark Hanner and Manuel Mai, who programmed it and then fed it like thousands of hours of stand up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's it, but but it's very bad. Like the the algorithm is rudimentary right now. 
Um, and we we had they, we had created it for to pitch it as a TV show, really. To like, uh, we figured if we had a show, we could kind of like pro, pro, proceed with getting it smarter and smarter and better and better comedy. And the show would actually like be taking it out on the road, doing shows with it and whatnot. Um, to kind of create the actual first, uh, intelligent, uh, artificially intelligent comedian, but, uh, nobody bought it. And so I was like, Hey guys, can I put this in my special? And they're like, yeah, totally. Um, but it really is very bad right now. It's, it's, uh, you give it one prompt and, uh, and it'll, it'll generate 500 jokes in a second, but like 499 of them are almost unintelligible. And then there's one that, that works. But I know there's there's some real debate going on in the art world about what this what the implications of this might be on actual human artists. Yeah, is, is there? So I immediately wonder: Is Jokatron a threat, not just to you specifically, but to comedians? If if you could just tell tell this robot to tell you a joke, even if it's nonsense, it might become more popular. Um, yeah, it is. The Jokotron's not a threat to anybody. Because <laughs> Jokotron is so bad at its job. <laughs> the I I find it exhausting to use because you have to comb through 500 jokes. Okay. And combing through 500 jokes to find the one that works is very difficult and arduous. However, if you put hundreds and hundreds of more hours of programming and coding into it, it would mm-hmm. probably get at least interestingly good, not like replace comedians good. The main thing is that um, a- algorithms don't can't go out and have new experiences in the world. And so they're not going to replace stand-up comedians because we have a, we're a human who interacts with the world at large <laughs> and they're just in a box. <laughs> so I don't, I don't worry about it in that way, but um but regardless, the thing is, is that we're just we're just like just running full mm. speed ahead towards like this crazy future. The 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 what you're talking about with the the art stuff. My friends, I was on a chat a text chat, and uh, when that first one came out, I can't remember what it was called. Dolly. Everybody, yeah, everybody was just like saying, "Here's the funny thing I put into it," and then sending us a screen cap of it. Right. And they were all bad. Like the faces were really bad. And then like three weeks later, someone was like, did you guys see this? And it was like, it was some crazy, like Garfield, Captain Von Garfield sits playing poker in 1926 was like the input or something. And it looks perfect. And, and my friend who's a stone sculptor was like, this is actually kind of scary for artists. And I was like, but also realize with what glee we trained it. Like we trained it, humans trained it to get better because millions and millions of people were using it every minute mm-hmm. to like, and saying like, this is the right one. This looks good. This looks good. And it was just learning from us. So we, we have this innate desire to want to create these intelligences, which is fascinating. Yeah. And eventually we'll create the Terminator. So that's, that's good to know. I don't even think, you know, I don't think the, 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 we'll never have to create the Terminator. We will create something that humans are like, oh, yes, we we like this. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh, yes, we will. Are you will you decide my entire life? Oh, OK, I will just lie down and sleep and then not exist anymore. <laughs> well, take me back to the moment you first met Kristen Schaal. I had seen Kristen improvise. I'd never seen her do stand up. 
Um, this was like in 2004, 2005, it was 2004. And I thought she was funny. And I think maybe she saw me. I don't know if she what, saw me improvise or not. What were you doing in 2004? I was uh, improvising and teaching improv. Um, actually in the, in, in the, in August of 2004 was when I took this, uh, this, this improv form we created called the Neutrino Video Projects. I was just going to ask. Yeah. To Edinburgh. And we lost $10,000. <laughs> and at that point I had been doing improv for like six years mm-hmm. and it was pretty much my life. And I was like, okay, well here is, we've actually invented a thing that has never existed before. It was like a, a, a completely improvised movie that was shot, scored and edited while the audience w- was live watching it. Um, and, and, you do- and you were doing it in a time when that wasn't quite as, as- accessible as it is now exactly yeah with your phones yeah it was mini dv tapes with big cameras and we had people physically running the tapes back into the theater where a vj would have two separate decks and a dj would add a soundtrack to the 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 video as it came in and uh and it was i was like this so this is something new and it's something very cool and then we lost ten thousand dollars and i was like oh i've i feel like i'm at the peak of what i can do with improv and i'm still losing money i need to do something else in comedy and so i wanted to start a variety show and so i went to the artistic director of the pit at the time who was Ariane moyad um who is now on succession and he's a very famous actor um, and I said, Hey, I want to do a variety show. And he's like, Kristen Shaw just asked me the same thing. And I knew she was backstage at the time. And so I literally just walked backstage and I was like, Hey, you want to do a variety show? I literally yelled to her across the theater and she was just like, okay. And, uh, and then we had never hung out before. We had never <laughs> talked really. Um, wow. we had seen each other once on a train and I was like, hi. And she was like, hi. And we just decided to do. Ah, your 20s. Ah, your 20s. You're just like, you want to do this? Okay. We don't have anything else going on. So you couldn't have possibly imagined that just doing this almost kind of yes and technique with the artistic director. Yeah. Yes, and I'll ask her right now. And you probably had no idea that 17 years later, you would still be doing a variety show with this woman that you just yelled at across the theater. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> was there ever a point because then you go from co-hosting a variety show to doing sketches together yeah was there ever a point where the two of you thought that you might succeed more as a duo than as separate solo acts it was so uh Kristen had been doing stand-up for about five years before we started working together and i had my first time doing stand-up or writing anything was uh, the first hot tub. And so I had no act. I had no solo act at the time. So I was writing for us and she was writing for us. And so we were kind of like both writing sketches for each other, but then Kristen was also writing her own stuff. And I was trying to write stuff for myself, but I was just really struggling with the um, transition from improv into standup. And so I think like maybe a year in, Kristen got um aspen for her solo stand-up so she was always on a separate track with her solo stand-up 
And it took me longer because I just kind of like build an act when I did not have one at all. Um, but it was exciting when, because Kristen went to Edinburgh with her solo act and then they wanted, uh, at Melbourne Comedy Festival wanted, um, wanted them, wanted her to bring her solo act to Australia. And, uh, and she wanted us to do our show because we had a full hour long show that we had written. And they, and they said, no, the, <laughs> the comedy festival was like, no way. And then, so Kristen just paid me out of her, the money she was being paid oh, wow. and flew me out herself. And, uh, and then we just, she did like half of her solo show. And then I came on and we did like half of our double act. And then we ended up winning the comedy festival, the Melbourne comedy festival with that. And so then the next year we brought our full hour long act to Edinburgh and then got nominated for the, uh, the big comedy award that year as well. So it was like very, I have to give Kristen a lot of credit for kind of pushing for me to be involved with that stuff. Right. That's amazing because they said no. And then she made it happen. Yeah. And then you end up winning. So you, you end up going to say, see, we told you, you should have said uh, yes. Yeah. And, and also if Susan Proven, who ran, runs the Mama Comedy Festival is listening to this, we also still have never gotten our, our like plaque. Like you win a plaque. Oh, the Barry award or whatever. Yes. Yeah, we won the Barry and we never got our plaque. She's like, we literally have physically holding one on stage and then like she took it away from us and she's like, we'll, we'll mail you, we'll mail you too. So well, that you both have one and then no one ever mailed us anything. <laughs> I don't know if this makes you feel any better, but I never got my ECNY award. Jeez. I, you can have one of mine. I'm looking <laughs> at them right here. <laughs> Emerging comics of New York. Assemble. Uh, was your first big solo break getting the game show bunk on IFC? Yes, that was my big first big break. Um, and that, yeah, that's what got me an agent. And that's what got me like headlining at clubs, probably prior to me being ready to headline at clubs. <laughs> <laughs> but that seemed like such a such a natural fit for you. I don't know if it was mm -hmm. because of that format in particular, but I really, I love that show and I loved you as the host of it. And you really, I really got the sense that like, oh, Kurt Browner, he's a game show host. He's, yeah, he's that guy. Was that a path that you ever seriously pursued? Um, well, no, not seriously pursued as like an actual game show, mm -hmm. but, um, but that game show. Yeah. I love that game show. It was so fun to do. And for those of you who are not familiar, it was like, uh, it was before at midnight and it was, uh, more of a loosey goosey kind of absurdist version of at midnight. Uh, where it was all three comedians competing against each other for no real prizes. And, uh, and all of the, all the games are just improv and craziness. Right. And it was on IFC, which I don't know what's on IFC now, but that was a period when I was just talking about it. Does IFC exist? <laughs> Does it exist anymore? We when don't IFC know. Was doing all sorts of things like comedy bang, bang. <laughs> uh, yeah. they had Mark Marin having a show there. Yeah. Portlandia, mm -hmm. the IFC show. They, they had a good run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, I don't want to spoil too much about your special, but 
I have to think that between having a deadbeat dad and a single mom who's a pediatric nurse who has has you babysitting by putting you in with other sick kids, you have to be <laughs> predestined for comedy, right? I had no idea until I, I, I hadn't actually realized it until recently um, when I was doing a joke that I did in the special, and but I was doing it at a club. And I was like, oh, that's why I'm a comedian. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that is why. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, I know the, the bit with the gas station wasn't planned, but how, how would you rank that compared to the actual pranks you have successfully pulled off? Um, this one was just much more embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, driving away with the gas pump in your cars yeah. and driving with it for a while. Yeah. It, uh, I it's picture, pretty embarrassing. I picture I'm in my head that the tube just keeps going, going with <laughs> forever. It's still connected. It's still connected. <laughs> if I were to animate the special, which I have no skill in doing it, I would, yeah, I would do it. Thank you. Um, well, where do where does the the impulse to do like these big things come from? Was it was it something that you had even before Neutrino, or was it something where mm -hmm. it was? It came from this thing that I did in the late nineties, early early aughts called uh, Changwin and Chunk, and Changwin was half chicken, half penguin, and he was pure love, and he laid eggs out of his but he was about eight feet tall and then chunk was um half chicken half skunk and he's pure evil and he shot water out of his tail okay and this this was like a again like giant street the giant gorilla street theater that my buddy matt murphy and i uh did uh matt just had an idea one day to build this bird changwin out of like chicken wire and feathers and he just walked around, I think, like Chinatown with it. And people went apeshit. They just thought it was so interesting. And he just got excited about it. And I remember it was back in the day. It's probably nine, 1998 or something. And it was the UCB email listserv. It was like before. <laughs> I mean, that's where it was at. It was like an email listserv. And it was just like everybody was on it at the theater. And then every day you would just get blasted with like 50 messages. Mm-hmm. And one of the messages was from him to that lister, like, does anybody want to play a half chicken, half skunk? And he said, I was the very first person to respond and said, I just played a monkey with a big blue dick. <laughs> Which I had. I had dressed up as a monkey with a big blue dick for money. Someone else's idea. But uh, and so he was like, this is the guy. And so then we met and we just really had. I had a lot of ideas about psychogeography, about transforming public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a lot of ideas about the narrative of Changwin and Chunk. And, uh, and we just, it was kind of a perfect marriage because I was in the improv scene and had access to all these improvisers like Brett Gelman and John Daly, um, who would come out and be part of like the crew that helped pull it off. And uh, he's just an artistic genius. Could build these, uh, build these giant animals, and that, and that was like my main artistic output from like 1999 to 2003 or so. We would pull one huge event off per year where we would 
I mean, Jesus, we would shut down Broadway for like two straight hours. Um, and it would just be thousands of people in the middle of the street. Uh, we had huge marching bands with giant parades. We had, and then there was all just a battle between these two characters that would just bump up against each other. And then eventually Chunk would fall over and his head would pop off. And we never got arrested. We would have like a, 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 a truck waiting for us around the corner that then we would just run over to throw the animals in, close it and just drive away. And so everything would just disappear very quickly. And we just love that idea of like these big public events in a very normal place that then uh, kind of made you appreciate why living in New York City is so fucking cool. And so that was where it came from, really. Okay. I always loved that kind of stuff. So then, like almost a decade later, you're talking to Comedy Central. You're an East Coast guy from Jersey. Mm-hmm. Went to school in Baltimore. Where does the idea come to jet ski the Mississippi? That was I sold a I sold a talk show weirdly to <laughs> I sold a talk show to Comedy Central Digital. Okay, it was supposed to be a talk show. Uh, and, but it was going to be in like weird places, like, uh, we're tubing the LA river and we're going to be having a chat while we tube the LA river, something like that. And then, you know, it took so long for the deal to go through. And during that time, I, uh, I had pulled off the skywriting thing and, uh, Comedy Central was like, we want something big like that. And I was like, okay, you want something big? Well, you know, and then I just like wrote a thousand things down. And then I was like, how about we jet ski across America? <laughs> and I was like, not thinking they would say yes. Mm-hmm. And bless their hearts. Comedy Central Digital came fucking through. I still cannot believe it. And they're like, we're going to do this. And uh, we did it. We jet skied from Chicago to New Orleans. I mean, like for a fucking... For like a web series, that's crazy. Had you jet skied much before that? I had, yeah. I grew up jet skiing. Okay. Because my dad, my dad had a jet ski. He was the, my dad was the rich one. <laughs> and the, you mentioned the skywriting that happened before the jet skiing, and that was a Kickstarter. Yeah, it was. A, I was. A, it was the only time I've used Kickstarter. Um. And I just had the idea that I wanted to like write a joke in the sky with clouds. And so just made a video, put it on Kickstarter. And it was the first time I ever experienced people being like, this is great. I like this idea. I'll, I'll give money to this. I was shocked and it really took off. And uh, we raised enough money to be able to do it. And it but was you never, awesome. But you never decided to do another one. No. I, you're like once... your one and only Kickstarter. Yeah. Yep. I just didn't, I didn't want to be that. I I don't know why. I just didn't like, I didn't like the idea of asking for money over and over and over again for like dumb ideas. Um, I don't know why really, because people are willing. (laughs) The dumber it is, the more people are willing, seemingly. Right. Um, I mean, that's one of the things Steve Bannon is in trouble for on both a federal and a state level is defrauding people into, thinking they were giving him money to build the border wall and he just pocketed it all. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, but you know, you were young and perfectly stupid and now you're older, you're married, you're a father. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about a little bit about that, but then you also talk about how there was a period where you had to go back to New Jersey and care for your mother when she was sick. Yeah. 
And I wonder how all of all of that changed your perceptions on what you wanted out of both your life and your career. Um it was I don't know if it changed my like the main thing was we were really just trying to give my mom the gift of of knowing that she had grandchildren. All she she wanted grandchildren her whole life. She loves kids. She was a pediatric nurse. And so it was just like this crazy time of life where we were like frantically trying to get my wife pregnant while also caring for my dying mother. Uh it was yeah, it was just kind of incredibly stressful and also actually a very good preparation for how stressful the first couple of months of being a parent are. (laughs) They're very similar. Having a parent dying and being a parent in the beginning are very similar vibes. (laughs) But has it changed? I mean, obviously, you know, you talk about your kids, perfectly stupid humor. Has it changed? Like, your own mentality in terms of like what kinds of things you're willing to do in terms of being perfectly stupid yourself. Um, I think what it has done is for my comedy, it has made me interested in having comedy that has a, um, an emotional core to it, if you will. And that's something that I tried to accomplish in this, uh, in this new hour um, to, you know, have something that to not be afraid of sitting in it a little bit, um, but still have a ton of jokes. You know, it's not a I think it's still a mostly joke, very joke heavy special, but still having an emotional core to it. And I think that is was been informed by my mother's death. Definitely. Well, and don't sell yourself short. I mean, turning Kristen Shaw into a horse does have an emotional (laughs) over and over and over again. Yeah. It does make you sit with it. Yeah. It makes her gallop with it. Yeah. Um, We sit with it. Well, Kurt, I I really appreciate uh, all the rescheduling and whatnot that uh, we finally made this happen. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. And congrats once again on the special. Thank you. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.